We are continuing our series that we started last week on the mission of God. And that sounds like a really intense thing, the mission of God, right? If you tell somebody you have a mission, they're like, okay, that person's on a mission. Now, as I say that, I also recognize that there may be those of you among us, and we're so glad you're here. You're like, mission of God? Like, I don't even, I don't even know anything about God. Like, <laughs> we taking a mission on for him? Like, what is that? Are you going to send me overseas? No, we hope to define this in a way, but, but also what I want to say is, for each of us, there is this sense that we've been made for a purpose, right? The sense that you are not an accident. And again, you can suppress that. You can make all kinds of sense of that. You can say that's just biological evolution that you had to convince yourself of to survive. But if we're honest, all of us feel this in- inkling in our hearts that we were made for something bigger. And perhaps... Perhaps the mission of God is just that thing. As you see it today outlined, if you're here today, you're like, I don't even know God. Perhaps that is the thing that's been burning in your heart. And for those of you who are here today, and you say, I've been following Jesus all my life, but I wouldn't say I'm on a mission with him. I pray that today is a starting point. That today is a day where you, you, it almost marks a before and after, where you say, okay, I understand a little bit about what Jesus is wanting to do both in and through me. Because when we talk about the mission of God, as we'll see, primarily, first and foremost, it is what God is doing in us, not necessarily through us. Moses was walking through the wilderness. The last place that he expected to see something new happen. This is a painting by Henry Osawa Tanner. You can look at that. And as Moses is walking through the wilderness, this is something he'd been doing for the better part of 40 years, every single day. Tending sheep, same kind of thing happening over and over again. And he catches out of the corner of his eye, he sees a spark. And he turns his attention towards it for a minute and kind of moves on. Apparently it wasn't all that uncommon for things in the desert to combust. And so if something's on fire, it'll burn up. Carry on. Moses keeps walking, and as he's walking, he turns again to this bush that's on fire, and he's like, you know, usually the bushes don't burn for that long. And he thinks to himself, what else do I have to do? Might as well go and see why this bush seems to have a supernatural uh, ability to prolong and to burn longer than I would expect. And so he turns towards the bush. On another day of the same old, same old, hurting these same old animals, walking in the same old wilderness, walks towards a burning bush. And as he approaches the bush, he hears a voice call out his name, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here I am. Some of the most powerful words in the scripture. Here I am. The voice said, come no closer. Remove the sandals from your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And the voice goes on, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Then the Lord said, I have observed the misery of my people who are in Egypt. I have heard their cry on account of their taskmasters. Indeed, I know their sufferings, and I have come down to deliver them from the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land to a good and broad land, a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Moses on an ordinary day hears his name called out. Not only does he hear his name, he hears the name of God. Just a few verses later, God will tell him, I am that I am. And God gives Moses a task. You see, the thing that had brought Moses to the wilderness, the thing that had put him in this place was the fact that he had murdered somebody so many years before. And he had fled from the only home that he had ever known into the wilderness. Some 40 years later, the voice of God meets him crying out, Moses, in a burning bush, a bush that's on fire. Acts chapter 2 says, When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested upon each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. As the writer of Acts describes this scene unfolding, the Spirit of God is given and it's poured out. Something like a tongue of fire rests upon each person who is there. Have you ever had an encounter that changed your life from that day forward? I was a soon-to-be senior in high school in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And I went to a subway that's in one of those big box shopping centers next to a Lowe's in the middle of Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And I went there, not because I think Subway has particularly good food. I think Taco Shelly is going to far surpass Subway. But... I went there because I had some friends that worked there. I had some guys on the inside that could hook me up with like, you know, double meat, double cheese. Didn't like vegetables at that point. We've remedied that situation since. And we walk into the subway. And as we walk in, we see that there are several girls in the subway, which as a senior in high school was of interest. And I went to a really large high school. Um, I realized I don't know these girls. I mean, it was a very large high school, but you kind of knew like at least who everybody was. These people did not go to our school. And as it turned out, these girls were also at the subway because they had friends on the inside. And as I talked to my friends, I said, who are they? And they said, these are our friends from church. And I said, church sounds compelling. But there we are. All of us in this random place, a subway next to a Lowe's in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. And little did I know that among those young girls, those women, was an amazing, talented, beautiful young woman named Courtney. Courtney Sullivan, who would later become Courtney Graham. I didn't know it at the time, but an encounter that day would change my life forever. It would shape the direction, all the goodness that has come. And we just started this new series on the mission of God. And again, it's easy for us to assume that the mission of God is primarily about what God wants to do, what we can do for God and what God can do through us. But when we talk about the mission of God, we're saying that the mission of God is first and foremost, it is God's mission. It is the mission that he himself undertakes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son. While we were still sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. God is not waiting on us. He doesn't leave us behind, but he first and foremost is the one who takes the first step towards us. Jesus comes to reveal fully God's mission in the world through his life, his death, and his resurrection. And when we read the gospels, every single part of them, 
when we read the life of Jesus, we see what God's mission is. And this is so incredible because God's mission is yes, dying for the sake of the world, giving himself on behalf of our sins. The big things that we would all apprehend as we read the story, this is a pivotal moment, but God's mission is also sitting across the table from those who had been uh, ostracized in that culture. God's mission is sitting down to eat with his friends. Jesus is not just showing us what God is like. He's doing that. He's also showing us what it means to be human. And Jesus comes and he announces the kingdom of heaven is near. And God's mission is not a program Jesus shows that wherever he himself is present, that God's kingdom in all of its fullness is present. You see, the kingdom doesn't come near just because Jesus says it's time for the the government of heaven to take over the reign of earth. The kingdom comes near because Jesus himself, the king, comes. And he draws near to us. And the way that the kingdom of God is revealed throughout the story of the scriptures, I think I I suggest that if we could go around and tell the story of our lives, the way it was revealed to us, is so fascinating because it's so inefficient. Why would God not undertake an entire PR campaign to tell the world, I am God, I am here, worship me. Jesus doesn't do that upon his resurrection. He doesn't go to the centers of political power. He goes to his friends and he shares a meal. And he teaches them about the kingdom of God. He sits face to face with them. And I think for many of us, this has been our experience. This is the reason we're here. Maybe you're here today and you have no idea what it means to come to church, but somebody invited you. They're just saying like, I'm trying to to show you this thing that's really important about my life. Or maybe if you could tell the story of your life, your own testimony, bearing witness to what God has done, you would say, there was pivotal people in my life who told me where to look, who told me about Jesus of Nazareth. Last year, we did this teaching series. It's it's one of my favorite topics to teach on about the big story that the Bible is telling. During this season in 2021, the fall season, the whole uh, fall was taken up by this series. We called it From Garden to City. And it's basically like, how do you understand the big story? Because I think, I'm very passionate about this, if you understand the big story, the little stuff starts to make more sense. And one of the things I tried to do was like, if I could just summarize this story for you, I I don't know if I could do better than saying that the, the, the Bible is about, at some level, it is about God stopping at nothing to be God with us. That God will stop at nothing to be God with us. That from the very beginning, God, when he creates the world, is creating a place where he could dwell face to face. If you read Genesis 2, there's a garden. And from the very beginning, God is wanting to draw near to us. And then we see this in the fullness of Jesus. John 1 says, the word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Then we see this in the end, Revelation 21. In this city, there will be no need for the sun because God himself is the light that gives heat and warmth to the city that has dispelled all the enemies of God, that death and sickness and sadness will be no more because God is there. This is the story. And the story of the scriptures are scandalously personal. 
Like, you realize how self-aggrandizing it is that you would feel that you live in the world, in this world of 8 billion people, in this world, uh, you know, this universe that we keep coming to understanding is bigger and bigger and is expanding and is just getting wider and there's planets and galaxies and solar systems we have no idea even exist and yet we keep finding them. And yet you think that you matter. 8 billion people. It just that exists right now, not to mention all the people that have existed throughout the course of human history. And yet you have this inclination that you are significant. It's one of the most radical claims of being a Christian. And it's one of the claims that people that are often agnostic or atheist kind of poke at. They're like, really? You think you're that important? Carl Sagan says this on his musings of earth as a pale blue dot that's just floating in the vast void of a solar system. He says, our posturings, our imagined self-importance, the delusion that we have some privileged position in the universe are challenged by this point of pale light. Our planet is a lonely speck in the great enveloping cosmic dark. In our obscurity, in all this vastness, there is no hint that help will come from elsewhere to save us from ourselves. And friends, do I have good news for you? Help has come. That yes, it is the most radical claim that somehow your individual life is so significant to God that he would give of himself fully and completely on the cross. But that is exactly the story that the Bible is telling. That yes, Jesus takes on our humanity and saves us collectively, but at the same time, he is saving us individually. And in the midst of that incredible claim, God is not content to speak to spiritual leaders and sages. If you read the story of the scriptures, there are people that are named Paul, Moses, Elijah. God speaks to them in a unique way. But the whole arc of the story, the whole sweep of it is that Jesus is trying to reveal to us that as he pours out his spirit, the same way that God spoke to Moses, he will speak to us. Paul reflects on this. And he says, Moses, when he saw the glory of God, had to cover his face with a veil. But Paul will say, we with unveiled faces behold the face of God. The, the writer of Hebrews will say, the angels long to look into what we see as people who have God's very presence near to us because Jesus has poured out his spirit. The voice of God calls every single person's name. Symbolically, the fire that rests upon each individual, that story of Pentecost we read Acts chapter 2, is that fire that called out to Moses, that called him out by name, and it's calling to each one of us. Each one of us by name. Each one of us with a purpose to bring liberation and healing and salvation to the world around us by sharing this life that we've been given. Our very lives in the hands of God are destined to become like the burning bush, a light with God's presence. Paul urges us to offer the whole of ourselves as a living sacrifice. And just like the bush that did not burn up, we will find that in that place of trust and surrender, that when we put ourselves on that altar, we entrust ourselves to this God, we too will not be consumed, but the world will find light and heat around our life that's given to him in trust. Jesus announces to his disciples that the world is new, that he is the risen Lord by encounter, 
by meeting with them, by his very presence. And he invites the disciples to touch his scars. He eats with them. He tells them about the kingdom of God. And we talk about the mission of God. The mission of God begins and ends in encounter. The mission of God is about us being with Jesus. It's about us inviting other people to be with Jesus. And so that we spend our time and our energy in the place where Jesus is. I want to look at four things that I think when we encounter God's presence, four things that we find that empower us for mission. The first is power. Acts chapter 4 verse 5 says, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and realized they were uneducated and ordinary men, they were amazed and recognized them as companions of Jesus. What an amazing thing. These religious leaders who had John and Peter arrested are saying, you know, when we look at the, the, the actual quality of these guys' lives, like their training, their education, we don't find much. But the one thing we do know is that they've been with Jesus. What a vision. And throughout the book of Acts, the, resur- the announcement of Jesus' resurrection and his kingdom is com- accompanied by powerful demonstrations that bear witness to what the disciples are proclaiming. Right now, I, I've got this ongoing dialogue with my dear uncle, and we sort of start and stop this from time to time. He is a very thoughtful, convicted, and committed atheist. And we go back and forth uh, over email, just, you know, and I'm, I'm trying to do my best. Like, I, I'm a somewhat thoughtful Christian. Like, I, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit. Um, I'm trying to tell him what I think is good and beautiful and true. And you know what affected Tad? Nothing. <laughs> Sometimes I feel like I'm beating my head against the wall. It's because, friends, no matter how beautifully, no matter how well, no matter how systematically theological we can describe what Jesus is trying to do, we can, we can talk about what it means to be human, no matter all those things, unless God's power gets a hold of my uncle's life at some level, it's not going to matter. Jesus said, he's like, listen, even if you saw a guy raised from the dead, it wouldn't change your heart. Something has to happen in our lives for us to understand, to begin to glimpse what God is wanting to do in our midst. And so the other side of being willing to dialogue with him and talk to him, and I love it. Like It's such an invigorating thing for me. But the other side of that is just being willing to pray for him and entrust him to the Lord. And just say, God, like, would you show him your heart? Would you show him a vision of who you are And friends, we need Jesus' power to live as disciples in this age that we find ourselves in right now. And what we find is that if you read the story of the scriptures, as you read that story throughout it, when God's people cry out for God's power, when they encounter his presence, God is liberal in giving his power. He doesn't hold it back. Read the book of Daniel. Daniel's in this all-encompassing crisis. His people have been exiled from the land. They're living in a pagan government. And Daniel finds that he can dream dreams and see visions. That God is so near to him in that place. Friends, we need the power of God. We need the power of God that we find in God's presence. And when we spend time in God's presence, we find the next thing. That, that encounter, that presence brings to us perspective. And power gives us perspective. Encounter with Jesus gives you a new way of looking at people. 
We have this beautiful example in Acts chapter 9. There was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he answered, here I am, Lord. Dangerous words. The Lord said to him, get up and go to the street called Straight. And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment, he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. You see, this man, Saul, was notorious for arresting Christians, for having them turned over to be tortured and killed. And Ananias is like, I don't really want to go to Saul. That is uncomfortable for me. That is dangerous for me. And yet, Ananias' time in the presence of God gives him a new perspective on people. And friends, the presence of God gives us a new lens to see that God is the pursuing God. He's looking for those who would be obedient to him. You see, when we go out, out of God's presence, out of an abundance of the time that we've spent with him and go looking for people, we're just joining God where he already is. God is pursuing the world. Jesus comes and he tells stories about the kingdom of God. He talks about a shepherd, a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and one of them leaves. And Jesus just assumes that in the kingdom math that you go, if you have a hundred sheep, you go looking for the one who's left. That doesn't make any sense, right? If you had a hundred sheep, you would just stay with the 99. Be like, sorry, one, good luck to you. But Jesus goes after the one and he assumes that that is the logic and the math of the kingdom of God. He tells stories about a woman who turns her house upside down to find her lost coin. He tells stories about selling all that you have to buy a field because the treasure that that field contains is so priceless. These stories aren't about us, friends. They're about Jesus. They're about his pursuit of us. And we join him where he is. And friends, we need to spend time in God's presence because we need to see people differently. We need to see that God might be in his providence, in his way of ordering the world, in his way of pursuit, arranging things in our lives so that we would be the voice that would say, hey, I, I, this is awkward. I don't really want to do this, but I, I just feel like I, I need to tell you about Jesus. And just like, I, you know, I was looking for, for, for meaning or for mercy or for some sense of coherence in this life. Like you may not have all the words, but just, just pointing them. There's power in that, friends. And we need to see people differently. Every single person that you encounter, every single person is a person made in the image of God. Is a person that Jesus gave his life to die for. They have infinite worth. Every single person. And what if we saw people that way? not as obstacles, not as annoyances, not as people to compare ourselves to, friends and neighbors, strangers alike. What if we allowed that to form our vision for the people that we would interact with? What might God do? I know there's some of you in our midst today who have just been walking around looking for people saying, God, who do you want to talk to? Thank you. What, what a vision. What a, what a vision of the God who is alive and is working in our day. Keep it up. When we spend time in Jesus' presence, we get a new perspective on people. But what we find is that, yes, it would be amazing if every time we felt this inkling to go and talk to somebody or to do something we kind of felt uncomfortable with, if it all just worked out amazingly, 
How many of you can acknowledge that doesn't always happen? Or how many of you can acknowledge when you undertake something for God that sometimes it's actually really hard? And that life doesn't just, you know, one plus one equals two, A plus B equals C. It doesn't always work like that. And so we need perseverance. And this is the next thing that spending time in God's presence does for us. And if we try to serve God outside of the presence of God, and you may say that's absurd, but we all do it, you will be entitled and burned out. But if you are empowered by God's very presence, you will find that on the other side, on the other side of disappointment, on the other side of of challenge, you'll find that that Jesus is waiting there for you. Paul writes in Philippians chapter 3, he says, More than that, I regard everything as lost because of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I regard them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but one that comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God based on faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. Paul writes these words from a Roman jail. And Paul's doing this quick survey in the last couple years of his life. You see, before Paul met that vision of the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was a pretty well-respected religious teacher. He was somebody that other people in his way of looking at the world looked at and they said that Paul, that's Saul at that time. He's got it all together. Like he's disciplined beyond any of us. He's smarter than any of us. People looked at him and they thought he had it all together. And then he starts to survey ever since I met Jesus, you know what's happened? I've been beaten within an inch of my life. Like literally they just stopped stoning me, throwing rocks at me because they thought I was dead. And then like I got arrested, I got transported to Rome and on the way to Rome, I get shipwrecked. And after floating for a couple of days at sea, I finally get washed up on an island. And you know what happens to me? I put my hand in a bushel and a snake bites me. I mean, at some point, like Paul's gotta be like, come on God, really? Like you can, let's keep the snakes away. Paul shakes off the snake, whole deal. And then he finds himself in a Roman jail writing a letter to a church. And you know what he determines after all of this? Finding himself in a place where he's dependent upon people for every one of his needs. He's in this cold, dingy, moldy place where people are sick and dying. And he's in this Roman jail where nobody regards him. You know what he finds? As he does his profit and loss, he sort of lays out the two columns. He says, okay, this is my life before. This is my life after. You know what he says? He says, worth it worth it. And is he just engaging in some sort of creative psychological dissonance, some Stockholm syndrome accounting, where all the numbers just add up to whatever he wants them to be? Look at what he says. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection, the sharing of his sufferings. I want to know Jesus. Because friends, the point of mission, the point of of God's presence is Jesus himself. The gift that we get is Jesus. I want to know Jesus. And Paul is saying that despite everything that has happened to me, it is worth it because I get Jesus. The presence of Jesus is not just a pep talk to go out and sort of get your butt kicked again for a while and come back and get refreshed. Jesus goes with us in that place of uncertainty, in that place where we don't know what will come next. 
Jesus is empowering us for perseverance by his presence. The last thing that Jesus gives to us in his presence, and these aren't the only things, but they all start with P, so you're welcome. Paul writes, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your gentleness be known to everyone. The Lord is near. Do not worry about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Jesus' presence gives us peace. John Wesley was a follower of Jesus for most of his life. He grew up in a Christian family. His mom was an amazing woman who put him on to the Desert Fathers, really lived an amazing life. But for most of his early adulthood, he kind of just had this sense that he wasn't really saved. He wasn't really redeemed by God. He kind of had this nagging sense of guilt. There's always this thing there that wouldn't go away. And as many of us do, he decided, like, I'm going to try to, you know, apply a balm to that. I want to I want to almost anesthetize that feeling. So I'm going to go on a mission trip. And he goes, and he goes to what was then the New World. He goes to Georgia to, to help evangelize the native tribes, the indigenous peoples that were there. So John Wesley sets out to sail across the ocean. And on that voyage, there's this great storm and John Wesley is thinking, okay, maybe we're not going to make it. And he's watching. There's this group of people that he's gotten to know a little bit on the voyage. And he's watching their response. He's seeing like, wow, they're, they don't seem worried at all. They seem quite peaceful. And then he's watching his fellow country people as they're, you know, the English are freaking out a little bit. And that was one of those scenarios that stuck with him. And he goes to America. He largely fails as a missionary. But he spends his time with these people called the Moravians, people that were based out of Hernhut, Germany. And there's this nagging sense, this guilt, this thing that won't leave, but there's also these people that are kind of a paragon of peace. And he's like, I don't know what to do with that. He goes back to London after failing as a missionary, largely, and meets this man named Peter Bowler. And Peter Bowler was a witness to him of the peace of Jesus that supersedes John Wesley's fears and doubts. You see, John Wesley was trying to say, if this is who I am, if this is what's in my heart, then Jesus couldn't love me. And Peter Bowler just keep telling him, he's like, it's not about you. It's not about your posture towards God. It's about God's posture towards you. It's not about your thoughts about God. It's about how God thinks about you. And this was a longer journey for Wesley as he processed what Peter Bowler is saying to him as he's processing these experiences with the Moravians. But it concludes with John Wesley having this amazing and, and distinct encounter with the presence of Jesus. John Wesley writes in his journal in 1738, he says, In the evening, I went unwillingly to a society in Aldersgate Street. So if you're here unwillingly, you're in good company. Jesus might meet you. About a quarter before nine, while he was describing the change which God works in the heart through faith in Christ, I felt my heart strangely warmed. I felt I did trust in Christ. Christ alone for salvation. And an assurance was given me that he had taken away my sins, even mine, and saved me from the law of sin and death. John Wesley would often describe this as his second conversion. Remember, he'd been following Jesus. He'd been doing the best with what he had, but God is patient. God pursues. God won't give up on us. And John Wesley's faith in that moment is both confirmed in an encounter and it is 
exponentially multiplied. He's like, there's something here. That's not just about what my intellect can grasp. It is about a presence that is meeting me here, that giving him peace, peace with God, a peace that John Wesley would then endeavor to share with the entire world. He would found a movement that we know today as the Methodists. There's a church down the street that is the product and the fruit of the faithfulness of a life lived several hundred years ago. Because mission always starts with encounter. It is about being transformed by God's presence. It's about meeting the very real presence of God. When John Wesley was later asked during this revival, as so many people are coming to faith in Jesus, why so many people would come to hear him preach, he would simply say, I set myself ablaze and people come to watch me burn. Paul writes to his dear disciple Timothy, he says, For this reason I remind you, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands, but the Spirit of God gave us, does not make us timid, but gives us power, love, and self-discipline. The Spirit of God, as Pentecost shows us, is the ongoing presence of God in our lives. Friends, you would think that at the moment where Jesus is taken off into heaven, that the disciples would have this different category, this different language for how God was present with them. They would say, oh, Jesus used to sit down to the table, but now he's, he's kind of... He's not present with us in the same way, but they don't. They talk about Jesus as if he, he's just as near because God has poured out his spirit. And as Jesus says, he comes to make his home with us. He gives us his peace and he does not give peace as the world gives, but he does not give and take away. He gives it abundantly. And so friends, today we have the very presence of God in our midst. It is scandalous. Yes. It may even sound a little bit crazy to claim. You're looking around. You're like, is God here? He's here. I had this vision earlier as we were uh, in the nine o'clock service. You know, there's something really beautiful about our church. Like as you walk, you can't do anything quietly in this room, which is totally fine. Again, like you sort of come in, like you can hear the noises. Like we had this streak going for a while where like, I think probably like 12 weeks in a row, we had somebody drop a very loud cup. It was kind of during the time. It's like, all right, that's kind of who we are. We had kids making, you know, duck noises and fart noises up here. It's just kind of, it's, it's all part of the deal. But in Revelation, Jesus talks, he says, I am the one who walks among the lampstands. In the book of Revelation, the lampstands are churches themselves. And I just, you know, God's kind. He gives us these pictures sometimes. I just have this picture as I hear the footsteps, like Jesus is walking just in our midst with all of the kindness of heaven, with all that he wants to say to each one of us with his presence. He's giving us his peace. And friends, his peace is, is meant to meet us here. Not to make everything okay, not to make everything better, but to give it the perspective of heaven to help us see things in light of who Jesus is. I'm going to invite the worship team to come forward. And I just want to say, as we talk about this fire, as we talk about the fire that drew Moses' attention, as we talk about the fire that was poured out at Pentecost, this fire of God's presence, What I simply want to do is create some space here at the end of our gathering for us to just encounter Jesus. And again, I'm going to hopefully lay that out to you where, where, regardless of where you're coming from, from a sort of spiritual background, that's not like, woo, but just a sense that God is near, that he's present here, that he wants to give us his power. He wants to give us a new perspective, both on our lives and on those around us. He wants to give us a spirit of perseverance. and He wants to give us his peace, the peace that surpasses all understanding. 
And friends, wherever you find yourself today, perhaps you're here this morning and you are the kind of person you're like, I don't know what brought me here. I came here unwillingly like John Wesley.